Good morning, everyone. How are we all? Good. Uh, obviously, you're not a Collingwood supporter, so that's good. Um, look, I know nothing about football, so, um, and I was pretty much drowned in preparing for this because I am very nervous, um, but let's not focus on me. Um, yeah, Bram did say, if you're not scared, then something's wrong with you. Um, <laughs> so, look, um, for those who don't know me, if you're new to this church, um, just a very quick introduction on who I am. So, my name is David. I've been coming to this church, um, I think, jeez, Bram, Rain Man. Um, but, yeah, 2003, um, I guess I was 18, so that was a long time ago, literally a lifetime ago. So, um, you know, I talked about singleness and all that stuff. Um, I'm so glad I am married now uh, because um, it used to be a weekly occasion that um, the leaders would come up and sell me out to the public that I am single, um, but no longer. So there's a lot more candidates over there. Um, I'm just, you know, just that side, that side, yeah. But um, my beautiful wife, Irma, is at the back. I have a three-year-old son. Um, he randomly s- runs up in very inappropriate random times, so I do apologize for that. But look, um, without further ado, let's uh, bow our heads, let's pray, and um, dedicate this time to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you um, for your word. I thank you for your kindness. I thank you for your goodness, Lord God, and I thank you, Lord God, that, um, that you are faithful to your people, Lord Jesus. And right now, Lord God, I just pray that, Holy Spirit, you would take control of um, me, Lord God, of my, my lips, my, my tongue, Lord God, because it's not me speaking, Lord God. I, I am merely just a vessel, and Lord God, I pray that you would anoint um, your people here, Lord God, um, open their ears, open their hearts, let them receive what you want them to receive, Lord Jesus. In your, in your mighty name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, guys, here we go. So, look, um, this morning, as I was preparing for, for what I'm about to share, and I will copy what Ben said a few weeks ago, we are amongst family, so it's not me preaching, I'm not qualified in any way, shape, or form, but it's literally just me sharing with family, so bear with me, yeah? Um, <laughs> yep, copyright, Ben Manasama, 2018. So look, the, the topic I wanted to, to talk about this morning was around repentance, um, when we talk about repentance, it's massive. And when God put that in my heart, I was like, really, God? Like, repentance? Um, it's, I'm already nervous as it is, like, being, being up here. But, but more specifically, what I wanted to explore was um, around repentance, but how does God want us to respond? So if you are writing your notes, if you are taking notes, the title of my message this morning is How to Respond or Responding with a Contrite Heart. And if you're not taking notes, I think you should because we'll be going through a few passages just to explore this. So look, um, throughout the Bible, if you are a Christian, if if you've been born, or even if you don't know uh, a lot about Christianity, I guess throughout the Bible, time and time again, um, you know, we see the call for repentance. And you've probably heard it through, you know, friends or whatever, if you're not a Christian. But yes, if you are a Christian, absolutely. Throughout the Bible, Old Testament to New Testament, Repentance is a key theme, consistent theme across the board, yeah? Um, from the days of Abraham to Noah to, you know, you, you name it. You can't deny that the, the word repentance is there. You know, Jesus himself preached the good news. You know, he announced in his sermons and, and his uh, miracles that he performed, he would announce God's kingdom and, and he would, you know, he would preach about the gospel but then the very next word, even when he's performed those miracles, when he's healed someone, the next word is always repent. Do not sin. Do not repeat your sin. So repentance is an absolute, consistent, underlying theme that is core to our Christian faith. Do you agree with that? Amen? So the Bible, in terms of repentance, also talks about a contrite heart. You know, Isaiah fifty-seven, fifteen. I'm going to just read this out to you, and you can maybe just dot, jot down the scriptures. Isaiah fifty-seven, verse fifteen. The place of contrition is a blessed place to be, 
God says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The contrite is promised a dwelling place with God. It's amazing. Isaiah 66, verse 2. The Lord says, These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Psalm 51, verse 16 to 17. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. So this is David, King David. Um, and we will explore this verse a bit later. So you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. And lastly, uh, another verse I picked Psalm 34, verse 13. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So what is a contrite heart? Like, um, you know, just looking at those verses, there are a few big words that thematically are related to a contrite heart. So um we read that it's linked to humility. We, we, we read that it's linked to brokenness. And also, and I think most importantly, a contrite heart is linked to a healthy fear of God's word. In the Hebrew or Greek um, translation, and Bram, please correct me, or any other Greek person here. <laughs> nice timing. Um, the word contrite is translated as crippled, broken, but also crushed. And the image I get when I was reading this was, it's like a mashed potato, not because I was hungry, but I think about it like, you know, if you're not crushed, you know, like a potato in its raw state is hard, you can almost kill someone if you had a spud, spud gun or something, like that's how, how bad it is. Like, but a crushed potato, I'm preaching about potato, but like when it's in that mashed state, it doesn't have to be a potato, you can shape it into anything. Um, it's pretty much at a state where whoever's holding it can do whatever he or she wants with it. So I read in one of the commentaries that, and I love this, he said, a contrite heart removes all natural pride and self-sufficiency aside, to enable absolute reliance on God. Uh, we heard from Dai this morning that, you know, this door just opened up about Ambon and about um, going to Maluku. And I think a contrite heart in the church is also important because to be able to, to just pack up and go and, and follow God's leading, you require that because it's not our own strength. It's an absolute reliance on God, yeah? Um, contrite heart, I think, why is it so important? And uh, in my preparing, I, I've boiled it down to two main things. So one, we talked about repentance. So if you think about it, why are we created as, as human beings, as God's creation? You know, we've read that we are created in His image, but at the core of it, I think God really created us to be in fellowship with Him, to be in true reconciliation with Him, yeah? And ever since man fell into sin, ever since that time, God in His amazing divinity, He created or his, He planned this redemption plan all throughout the ages that culminated in, you know, his son Jesus Christ being crucified, and we know that it's for the forgiveness and redemption uh, from, from, for us, for, from our sin. And I think and I believe that, you know, just as um, I love what Bram preached about and what he said a few weeks ago, 
that God initiated the reconciliation. So we know that it's by grace that we are saved. It's not by works. So God initiated that reconciliation, but the, the quality of the reconciliation depends on the quality of our repentance. I love that, what Bram said. I, I noted that. I remembered it. Um, but if you think about the repentance, true repentance, how can we truly repent if our heart's not mashed, if we don't have that contrite heart? So that's point number one. So I think repentance, sorry, a contrite heart is required for us to experience true repentance, which then leads to a true fellowship and reconciliation with God. So if you may have heard about it, that repentance is a 180 turning around to where God, God wants us to be. I believe that. But I don't think that's the only reason. I think even once we're saved, we still need repentance we still need a contrite heart. Why? Because it says, like, we know that God wanted us to be created in His image. So the work's not done. You know, Paul, Paul says that, keep working on your salvation. Is that Paul? <laughs> I think that's Paul. We believe you. Thanks, Ty. So I think that continual repentance, you know, we talked about that 180 degree, but if you think of us as a ship, a large ship like the, uh, the Titanic drowned, so that's not a good example. <laughs> um, sinked, yes. Um, but if we were a ship, and our life is a ship, and God, the Holy Spirit, is the captain, he was, he's telling us where to go. I, I just got this this morning. I, think, I feel like um, the contrite heart is almost like the rudder that steers the ship. If the rudder's hard, you can't, you can't, you can't re-navigate. You can't correct your course. And the thing is, people talk about repentance being this massive thing from 180 degree to another state. But I actually think it's more than that. Like, God has an optimal design for each and every one of us here. And the thing is, if you think about it, you know, the ship would sail slowly, and if the destination is, is, is heaven or is, is our final destination with God, the slightest degree of discrepancy will lead you in the wrong place. So it's important to have a contrite heart because every now and again, we can get it so wrong. And we have the church. You look around in the media, the modern church, or what, you know, and I'm not going to name names or whatever, but you read and you see the state of the world, it's like confusing. Where are we? You know, I am so scared to death of when my kid grows up because I'm going to have a lot of difficult conversation. But that contrite heart allows you to receive from God and whenever there's a call for repentance and whether that's a, a huge repentance back to, you know, to, to, to receive Christ for the first time, or daily, continually afterwards, we need that contrite heart. So anyway, that's the why. So I'm just trying to build it up here. So um, so a few examples, you know, Abraham, he, need, he had to have a contrite heart to just pack up and leave his hometown and go to where God intended him to be. Noah would have to have that contrite heart, that humble spirit to listen to God and actually build an ark, build a ship when it actually doesn't make sense physically. So look, I want to take you guys on a journey. So um, we're going to read a few passages. Um, you know, there's a lot of examples in the Bible on, uh, when we talk about contrition or, or repentance. But really, I wanted to explore two main characters um, in the Old Testament, Saul and David. Um, if you have your Bibles, why don't we open to 1 Samuel 13? How are you guys going, by the way? My Bible is falling apart, so... it's <laughs> a good sign. Yep. <laughs> All right, so... 
we're not going to read the whole thing, but um, in summary, so 1 Samuel 13, verse 1, um, if you read through this, and you can read through this at home in your own time, but it's a really interesting story, actually. So Saul here um, is leading the army of the Israelites um, to war against the Philistines. And in this particular case, um, they're getting cornered, and they're, they're dispersing, they're fleeing um, in a very quick uh, manner. And comes Samuel. Um, so Samuel had instructed Saul to wait for him, and, he, and Samuel would offer sacrifices. But in this story, what happened is Saul took matters into his own hand, and he couldn't wait no longer. And if you read the verse, um, you can see the motivation behind it was, in a way, fear. Like, um, Samuel had promised he'd come at a certain time. He was late. And, I, you know, some commentaries say he purposely came late to test Saul's resolve. But he came late, and Saul freaked out. It didn't go according to plan. So what did he do? He took matters into his own hand. And he couldn't wait any longer, so he offered the burnt offering himself. Funnily enough, um, straight after he burnt, um, offered the burnt offering, Samuel arrived just after he had done so. And we see in verse 11, so in verse 11, Samuel, I'm going to read it out to you. Samuel rebuked him and... and find it a bit comical because as I was reading this, I was telling my wife, I can imagine Samuel being this old, wise guy with a long beard, like almost like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings, you know. And you know that scene where, where Gandalf goes, for, for you, you guys who are nerds here, that, that's, that scene where he goes, thou shall not pass. I love that. And, and I just think this is the kind of, like, authority in his voice, you know, as I was reading this, you know, like, and just, wow. Anyway, so you imagine that, and he, re- he came to Saul, and he, he, re- he rebuked him. He said, what have you done? <laughs> Asked Samuel. Yeah. And Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. And if you had, and listen to this, if you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin and Saul counted, yada, yada, yada. The next story I wanted to share with you, if you fast forward to, um, if you jump the page to 1 Samuel 15. So similarly, he was at war and God had... He's going to war against um, the Amalekites. And um, God had gave, given um, Saul specific instructions to, to wipe them out. As cruel as that sounds, that was God's specific command to wipe them out. We read later that, you know, back in the Old Testament, obviously, um, God would use his people to enact his judgment and if you read about the Malachites, they're a very cruel nation, and they, they, were, they are literally savages that would murder, rape, you know, all this stuff. So that's, if you're wondering why, why God would ask of such a thing. But um, the point is, he had a specific command for, for Saul to enact. And it's like Saul didn't learn his first lesson. He did it again. He disobeyed God again. And it was quite clear that, you know, the command was so specific, but when we read through, um, there are a few points that I'd like to note here, which is very interesting. So let's read on from um, verse 7. You guys still with me? Yep. Great. 
So then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur. To the east of Egypt, he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with a sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. So remember that the command was to wipe everything. Don't leave, don't spare no one, not even the cattle, not even any people, but he spared them. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all night. So early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told he has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, and this is funny as, because he doesn't know he's in trouble. He comes up and greets Samuel. Greetings to you. The Lord bless you. I have carried out Lord's instructions. And Samuel probably shook his head and just said, and as he was doing that, he heard this bleating of sheep and lowing of cattle. Just picture that, all right? Like, Samuel's about to give this rebuke. Saul comes up almost daft and ha- have no kind of awareness of what's about to come to him. And then he c- tries to cover up saying, oh, the Lord bless you. And then the very specific command was, don't spare anything, not even the cattle. And then, meh, the side, like, you know, like this is... And Samuel's just going, oh, man. And <laughs> so Samuel says, what is this bleating of sheep in my ears and this lowing of cattle I hear? And Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. <laughs> and Samuel's just going, stop, stop. Oh, man, Stop. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. He sent you on a mission saying, Go completely destroy these wicked people. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And guess what his answer is? He goes, but I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission he assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, the king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And only then, only after he was pressed numerous times, did Saul finally confess, saying, I have sinned, I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions, and I was afraid of the people, so I gave it to them. And now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel." Wow. So we, we see here that in, in 1 Samuel 13 that Saul, it was like he wasn't aware of what he had done wrong. You know, first of all, he was, he, he, even after he was told that he was going to lose his kingdom, guess what his response was? Nothing. We don't read any confession. We don't read any... I'm sorry, Lord. You would have thought that if you were a king and, and, and someone told you, hey, you've done this, you're going to lose your kingdom, you would have just reacted and said, 
why? What happened? What? I'm, I'm sorry. But no, Saul was oblivious, and he responded in silence. We, we read that he just parted ways. And then we come to that next story. In this time, he wasn't losing. He was winning the battle, but he didn't carry out God's instruction properly. And when rebuked, he made excuses. It's funny because what's interesting is when you read through it, when I first read it, um, it, it, it didn't seem that big of a deal. It, it, it seemed like, you know, he still um, defeated the Malachites. He still did this. He still, still offered the offering. But what was interesting was it wasn't according the way God wanted him to do it. And sometimes I feel like in our lives, we can do the same. We think we're enacted, enacting God's word, and we think we're doing what's, what he requires of us, but often we get it so wrong because we didn't listen specifically to what God had instructed us to do. So I think none of us are immune to, you know, this. And a contrite heart is actually important because we'll read later about David. A contrite heart does not take things into your own mind and do things, even if it's God's instruction in, in your own understanding. So let's, let's go and look at David. So who here knows the story of David? Um, so he was made king over Israel after Saul died, and we read throughout his life the early stages of his life, and even when he was running away from Saul, you know, he's a, he's a person that knows intimacy with God. And just back to my point that none of us are immune, neither was David. You would have thought that after defeating Goliath, after being rescued from the hands of Saul so many times, after seeing miracle after miracle, the last thing you would do is commit what, he's about, what, what he did commit, his sin. But we read that he did fall into sin, and it's not just any ordinary sin. It's a sin, one of the biggest sin that's actually stayed and been written over and published over and over again in the Bible. Um, he fell into sin, and we know that, so for those who probably aren't intimate with the story, he was um, staying back in his palace one night, uh, one day, when all his guys were at war, and he decided to take take a walk on his rooftop. Um, and he saw this beautiful woman and committed adultery. Basically, he forced his, him, his self uh, and called her and, uh, and manipulated his position as king to take advantage of the situation. Um, so he committed adultery, slept with Bathsheba, and she fell pregnant. So that's, number one, sin was adultery. Number two, he, he committed deceit, he lied, he tried to cover up. And what a guy, like, he, to, to cover up his sin, he tried to invite back her husband, Uriah, to come back home from the war, and he wanted him to get to, to Uriah to, to go sleep, uh, go back home and basically have, you know, intimate relations with his wife so that he can claim that hey, it wasn't my baby, it's, it's Uriah's baby, but Uriah being an honorable man, he didn't want to do that because he knew his army was war, um, at war. He was like, why would I do this? So he instead slept at the foot of the palace and didn't go home at all. Paint that picture, right? So, And then <laughs> even further, David tried to spike his drink or make him drunk and get him to go home and sleep with his wife. But no... Uriah didn't have a bar of any of that. So David's like, oh, scrambling, what am I going to do? I'm just, people are going to find out. So the next thing he does, he commits murder. He sends him out to the front, front line and basically tells you know, the rest of his army to withdraw um, so that he gets killed by the Ammonites. So just think of it. His sin in, on face value is actually, according to us, you know, human beings, we would look at that and go, oh, that is so much bigger than Saul's sin. Saul, what did Saul do? Saul disobeyed. He partially disobeyed. He kind of 
obeyed God, but he disobeyed. But David, he committed adultery, deceit, and murder, which, you know. And we, we know the story of um, his rebuke. So, so God sends, sends Nathan, um, a prophet, to, to rebuke him. And I just want to read you from 2 Samuel 5, 14. Sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 5. Because I think it's important we, we read this to see the reaction that David had and how he came to realization of his sin, yeah? So basically, Nathan comes and meets him, greets him, and tells him of this uh, story. And um, let me just read you quickly. So the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought, raised it, and it grew up with him as his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. 2 Samuel 12, sorry. Yep, 2 Samuel 12. I might have got that wrong. So verse 4, Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal to the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the elam that belonged to the poor man and prepared for the one who had come to him. So listen to this. Listen to David's reaction. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. It was like, you know, you know those moments where you're like, you say something and you you wish you didn't say it? I reckon David just went through that. Because Nathan then said to him, you are the man. This is what the Lord said, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives (laughs) into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. So why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah to be your own. And we, we see in verse 13, immediately David realized what he had done and his sin. And, and he said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin and you are not going to die. But we do read that there are repercussions later. Um, but I wanted to focus on his response. I wanted to focus on his confession. So reading these points, there was a few points, uh, a few main observations that I took about a contrite heart. Um, And just one last scripture that I wanted to draw you, everyone, to attention is Psalm 51. 117. So remember, if you can open your Bibles, let's, let's read this. Um, let's follow. I'll read, and if you guys can follow me, um, just quietly. So here, this Psalm 51 is one of the most famous um, psalm, um, and it, it talks about um, David's heart and his response, and it talks about his sorrow after the confession, after he had realized um, that it was his sin that he was, he had, what, what he had committed. So I'm going to read to you from Psalm 51, verse 1 to 16. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. 
Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Clean me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me that I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You did not delight in sacrifice, or would I bring it? You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. All right, so when I was going through these things, I was praying like, God, what is it? Because this the whole thing about contrite heart is so, uh, and repentance is so wide. But I really wanted to narrow down to two main points. Um, you know, we, we read that, we read about Saul's repentance or quote-unquote repentance. We read about his confession, reluctant confession. We read about David's confession and his sin. So my first point, point number one, if you're writing, if you're taking notes, is a contrite heart takes sin and its consequences very seriously. Like Unlike Saul, who kept making excuses to defend himself before finally making a reluctant confession, you know, David's confession came with immediacy, without denial, and without self-justification. Saul justified himself. He was like, he even threw his people under the bus. There was no bus at the time, so he threw them under the camels, I guess. But what's interesting is when David had confessed in that manner, and I was blown away when I learned this, the Lord's forgiveness was equally direct and equally unrestrained. Unlike Saul, who sounded oblivious to his sin, you know, David actually was well aware of what he had done. You know, you read in Psalm 32, he says that it's actually making my bones waste away. It's eating me from the inside. He knew what he had done, but he had, at that time he hadn't confessed yet. We read through the, the story of Nathan and his response, his angry response. He knew that that person deserved death because, you know, you've got to know that David was, he knew the law, like, he's a king, and he knew what it was that he'd done, uh, and he knew what the consequences were. So, so it's one thing to know the consequences of sin, but it's a totally different thing when you accept what that consequence is. And as soon as Nathan told him, it was you, David knew that he deserved death. He accepted that he deserved death. I wonder, I just wonder, and even when I reflect on myself, when I, talk, when I think about my own sin or my unrepentant heart, and it happens time and time again, how much do I actually understand the consequence and accept that there is a consequence to it? How often do I go, oh, God is graceful, like this whole thing about hyper grace, like sin now and worry about it later. No, there's, you know, I think the first thing about a contrite heart is, you realize what you've done and how heavy that is. And if we don't truly feel remorseful about our state of sin, I think we have a problem. In verse 3 in Psalm 51, he says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And when he confessed of his sin, he knew 
what he had done. One interesting point is David made no sense, uh, no, sorry, no case for self-justification. If you think about it, he had done so many great things. He had led so many armies, uh, so many into battle and won so many things for God. He, he could have boasted. He had every right to, to tell God, but God, just spare me. Look, look what I've done. But he made no case for self-preservation. And that's what a contrite heart does. When you know you're in the wrong, when you know you've got something that God needs to correct in you, a contrite heart will completely let go and surrender and actually just, okay, God, do something. I was reading to a, I was um, hearing, listening to a podcast from Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, and uh, one of my favorite preachers, Jim Simbala, was preaching about repentance and I just wanted to repeat a quote that he said. He said, how would you know to hold on to the lifeboat, to a lifeboat, if you don't realize you are sinking? And how would we know to hang on to a savior if we didn't know we were sinning? sinning?" So I just think, you know, a contrite heart opens that up and and sets you up for that first step in, in, in repentance with Christ. Point number two is a contrite heart recognizes God's purpose, his mercy and his grace behind his call to repent. So we know, like, I look around and I read things in the paper or in the news and, or in forums. There's this whole thing, this new thing about you know, I, I touch on it briefly um, about, you know, the state of the church today where I, know, I just hear that this thing about tolerance, love, acceptance, um, and every time they are confronted or people are confronted with a call to repent, and even myself, you know, the first thing, my reaction would most often be um, be defensive. It's almost like you know what, love is acceptance. You need to, you know, yada, yada, yada. Um, why aren't you accepting me? You're not truly loving me. But I think that God's call to repent is actually the biggest sign of his grace. I'll read you one extract, another quote, which is beautiful. Um, So to think that the message of grace and the call of repentance are opposed to one another is to miss the beautiful, grace-filled nature of what repentance actually is. The call to repent is one of the greatest expressions of the love of God. So I believe David was already aware. He He had already experienced God's goodness in his life. Um, so he knew what was at stake, but at the same time, he knew that when God reminded him, when he, God rebuked him of his sin, at, at the heart of that call to repent was actually God's heart to reconcile David back to him. If only we could realize that, I don't think we would get so offended when we hear that reminder or that course correction in our lives. See, God commands us to repent not because he is an angry tyrant who wants to squash our fun, but because he is a loving father who wants our best. Uh, If I see my own son heading to a path of destruction, my love for him demands me to call him to change course. And I couldn't really comprehend this, and I think uh, until I became a father, because as soon as I became a father... I understood the Father's love, you know, like a, a bit better. <laughs> um, you know, last week, Tane came up and did a baby dedication, and it was so beautiful. And if you were here, you, you undoubtedly would have experienced the way he prayed. It was so moving, and it was just so sincere, so simple of the Father's heart for his daughter. I believe God's the same. Like, that's the heart behind that call for repentance, 
And if we only realize that, that it was God, God first, he gave it all for us, how could we then respond in spite or in, in self-defense? I think the problem with the church today and the problem with the world is that we tend to show people their sin first before we show them God, before we reveal them what God's grace actually is. See, that contrite heart will know that. A contrite heart truly realizes the motivation of God behind what he's calling us to do. On that same vein, a contrite heart will compel us not to sin and repeat that sin any further. Because if you've truly realized what Christ has done in your life and what he gave to reconcile you back to the Father, to Him, if, you truly, if we truly realize that it was our sin and our disobedience that actually hung Him on the cross, why would you hold on to the very thing that actually killed Him? To me, that's common sense. So a contrite heart ultimately is concern about being reconciled to God. I want to remind you on Saul's confession. You know, we read towards the end of that 1 Samuel 15, how Saul was like, forgive me, and so I can save face. Like his confession was, first of all, reluctant, and he had to be pressed and pressed again until he finally confessed. When he confessed, it was actually all about him. It was about damage control. Like he realized, oh my God, what have I done? I'm in trouble. Samuel, that old guy's going to like fully beat me up, whatever. But, but his, his confession was to minimize the damage he's done. It's like he, he had dug himself into a hole, and he's trying to save himself some face. And it was actually clear in that passage that he begged Samuel to come with him so, um, so he could save face in front of his people. But David's confession was centered in wanting to get back to that place of intimacy and righteous standing before God. See, David knew God's real heart, his confession was the antithesis, and this is, I copied this from what Bram said to me, of everything Saul tried to do. Saul tried to do everything in his own understanding. He tried to offer sacrifices, but David actually said, God, it's not sacrifice that you're after. It's my obedient heart. So when Saul was all but about himself, we read, we read David, David's heart and his confession, and I think it's summarized in Psalm 51, 11, and 12. I think this whole confession, this whole thing that we've read in Psalm 51, I think the pivot or the, the main thing was, was in verse 11 and 12. He said, Do not... Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me and restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit. It's like he didn't care about anything else. Like he had it all. He was king. He said, if you wanted sacrifices, I've got all the cattle I can give you. I've got all the wealth, the, the prosperity I can give away and burn it. But he knew that that wasn't enough. And all that mattered in the end for him was he wanted God with him. He wanted that intimacy. And he knew that the only way he could get his joy back was if he was reconciled with God. So I want to invite the band up. Um, as we close... Um, there is so much more you can explore in these verses. But 
I just want you guys to maybe, if you, there's anything to take away from my message today, is one, that humble spirit, it's okay to be broken, but know that that brokenness, God wants you to be contrite in that state of brokenness so that first we know the magnitude of what life would be without Christ. And point number two, that to know that ultimately behind the need for repentance or the call for repentance is God's heart of love, of mercy, of grace, that he's given everything to us. And he's asking to us, how will you respond? Will you respond with a contrite heart and obey my words every single step that I've asked you to take? Or will you try to do it in your own way? I want to close with a personal, my own personal repentance. I've had to repent many times for many different things, but I want to take um, just a moment. And the band, maybe you can start playing something in the background. So, for for those who know me, um, yeah, me and my brother, we've come to Melbourne Life for a while. Um, and for those who have been long, uh, been here long enough, you've probably known the journey I've had, my family's had with um, battling or dealing with Parkinson uh, that my dad's experienced. So if you don't know my mom and dad, they're sitting right there. I just want to tell you a story of what I went, th- what we went through as a family, but also what I personally had to deal with in my heart. This was a few years back. Um, I can't remember exactly when. But I was already walking. Uh, I was born as a Christian. I was already walking um, and serving in the church. So like, like David, I've actually already experienced God's goodness um, in my life. <laughs> but um, when, when Dad was diagnosed with Parkinson, um, you know, there was a few things that we had to deal with. I just wanted to briefly paint you what my dad was, or is, right? But before he was sick, when he was healthy, and I think my brother would agree with me that he was probably the best father figure I could ask for. I was lucky enough. I know some people aren't fortunate enough to have a dad or to have a loving dad. But my dad was, was, he was a stand-up man. He was loving. Everything he did was for the family. Um... And a few years ago, I was traveling to Sydney. I can't remember if it was for work, but I came to this um, Sunday service, just randomly invited by a friend. And there was a uh, there was the the preacher there who stood and um, and after the service, and it was at a cinema, if I recall correctly. And I was probably standing where where you are up there. Um, and this guy, just after the sermon, we were about to to um, dismiss ourselves. He called me out. He said, hey, you. And I looked back. It was a wall, so he was definitely talking to me. And he's like, can I get your number? I'm like, okay. So I reluctantly gave him my mobile number. And um, that evening he called me and he said to me, you know, you know what? And, and note this. This was a few years before dad was even diagnosed or things got bad. So he, he told me, like, hey, um, I just feel the Holy Spirit prompting me saying, do not despise or do not be disappointed with your dad. At that point, I was just like, ah, you got it wrong. Like, my dad's just awesome. He's my hero, you know, like all that stuff. And um, he, he apologizes. He was so humble. He said, I'm sorry if I got it wrong. I just felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to tell you this. Take it or leave it. Pray about it. So a few, sorry, a few years later, you know, the diagnosis came and it was a gradual decline from a physical sense. And it was to the point where dad couldn't move. You know, we would have to support him and spend 40 minutes or whatever to just even get him up from his bed to the toilet and all that stuff. And um, we, we, we decided to try this thing called uh, DBS. Uh, If you're in the medical profession, you might know what it is, deep brain stimulation. So basically implant a uh, a stimulator in his brain 
and you know he thinks he's Iron Man because of that. Uh, <laughs> but what happened was, and Brahm was there that night after the operation. Um, I, I came back from an interstate work travel, and my brother said to me, he put, pulled me aside before I went in to see Dad. He said, "Hey, you got to be prepared about of what you're about to witness." And I, I didn't know what exactly I was going to um, have to deal with. And, and as I walked into that hospital room, um, I saw Dad just on the floor making no sense and babbling certain things. Um, and it, it struck me. It was just like, oh, God, why? And um, even after that, you know, we, we finally took Dad home and, and what happened, just really quickly, the stimulation in his brain um, and those who are, again, in the medical profession, you would know that the slightest adjustment in your brain can cause so many different things. And in this case, it caused a change of personality in my dad. Um, and he doesn't mind me sharing this because it's real. Um, and for a good year, and I remember very, very clearly that 2012 roughly 2012 was probably the toughest time of my life and probably my, my brother, my family, my mom, because we, everything we knew about my dad's character actually ch- got challenged. Like what we saw, what we knew, um, that stand-up guy, um, all of a sudden he became this aggressive, impulsive person and we just didn't know how to handle it and it completely ruined us, right? Um, and also seeing how physically taxing it was on him. I remember, I remember saying to God, why God? Why don't you just take him home in the state where he's still got everything, his integrity intact? Why did it have to come to this? And I remember in that moment, I, you know, I, I put a wall up and I started blaming God. Not so much for causing that sickness because I was raised, I was taught to believe, to know that God doesn't cause any of that stuff. But I blame God for not intervening with a miracle. And like a flick of a switch, I allowed myself to be angry with God. I was like, you know what? If that's the God that I know won't intervene and won't do anything with this situation, I don't want anything to do with him. I was at risk of losing my, my, my walk with Christ because I was angry at God. I remember sitting in church services at this very room. Everyone was experiencing encounter with God, like getting filled with the Holy Spirit. I was sitting at the back by myself, filled with anger. And I remember I was fuming. I was like, I had all these questions in my head. And I started rejecting God for everything. And one time I I even had to walk away from this room and actually bolt out because I couldn't stand it. The very thought of worshipping God was actually, became so offensive to me. It was weird. And I totally lost sight of every single good thing God had done for me. So just to fast forward... The pivot for me was when God reminded me of that very prophecy at the start. You know, his rebuke in my situation came in the form of a gentle whisper during one manifest. Um, It was like I had this, it was literally just one song. It was Jesus, it is you. I know we've played it for 90 minutes one time, but this wasn't that time. But in that moment, it was like I had this full-on conversation back and forth with God. I presented with, to him everything I was angry about. God's answer was that, I know what you've, you're going through, David. I know what your dad's going through. The, re- the very reason I came to this earth as Jesus Christ was that I can experience the pain, the suffering that humankind would experience. Now remember that every question I had in that moment was answered through the person of Jesus. I remembered that every emotion, sorrow and brokenness I felt 
that God had experienced and actually walked through it through Jesus. It finally clicked that the one reason, one of the one, one of the reasons Jesus walked this earth was to experience our suffering so he can sympathize with us. He was no longer this distant God to me that wouldn't do anything for my dad. But I realized that actually he has done everything for, for my dad. He's, he knows everything that he's going through. And that's almost probably more crucial to me in my personal relationship to understand that he's a God that reaches out. And I remember that very moment. I, I said sorry to God. I, I, I repented. I confessed my sin. And as soon as I confessed, and I will never forget this, I remember in my mind, I just had this clear, very clear picture of my dad walking away in a distance. And right next to him was Jesus holding his hand. And, and God saying to me that, you know, I love your dad probably more than you will ever love him. And, and after that, I remember just breaking down in tears. We were probably on to the fast song by that time. We were back to like jumping. Everyone was jumping. I was on the corner, breaking down in tears on my knees. And I remember the, the, the weight of guilt of having been angry with God suddenly just lift off me. And from that moment on, I was... I've never gone back. Like that is the anchor uh, for me. Like, you know, you, I've gone through so many other questions in life and, you know, as you, as you do. But that was the anchor. See, I don't know what you guys are going through. I don't know what everyone here is dealing with. You might be going through your own personal thing with God or you might be in a situation where you're desperate, you know, there's so many things going on. Um, and brokenness is a state of, um, you know, is, is an inevitable thing in this world, right? But I think what helps us to anchor our faith to Jesus is having that contrite heart, you know, remaining humble, remaining broken. It's okay to be broken, but in that brokenness, seek God and, and just clearly see his motivation, his love for you, that sometimes he allows things to shape us. Sometimes he allows things to, to point us back to him. So if you, if God's speaking to you today and he's knocking on your heart, um, it may be for different things. It might not be as severe as what I went through. Um, but just remember his goodness, remember his kindness. Remember that he is calling us to repent, but it is out of a place of mercy, out of a place of love. And when we respond with brokenness, will we respond with brokenness or will we put our guard up like Saul did? If we do respond with a contrite heart, I know that you know God will restore that joy of salvation to us. And he will complete his work. He will shape us to, into his image, into the, the design that he wanted us to be a part of. So as we, I, I want to invite you guys to feel free to come up for prayer or if you just want to stand up or be where you are. Um, I want to invite Michaela up, if she's around. Um, we're going to sing, I'm going to uh, um, ask her that she's kindly said yes at the very last minute to to sing a song and as she sings I just want to allow you guys to have a time um, if you feel the need to repent of something it's not out of a place of judgment or condemnation but this is an opportunity for you to have that conversation with God and um, I'd like you guys to just close your eyes feel free to stand, worship um, or whatever it is and um, if you want to come up for prayer I'll be here to pray I'll invite Carvin or the leaders to help pray as well why don't we close our eyes Father we just thank you Lord God for your word I thank you Lord God I pray Lord God that you would continue to do your work Lord God 
continue to teach us, Lord God, to be broken, to be humble before you, to maintain a contrite heart, Lord God. Because, Lord God, we know, Lord God, that it is in that place, Lord God, that you can speak to us, Lord God, and we will listen. And it's in that place, Lord God, that you can tell us anything and we will obey you, Lord Jesus. Father, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving us Jesus so that we can have a hope, Lord God, so that your love for us is real. We can have something to anchor ourselves to, Lord God. God, we dedicate our hearts back to you, Lord God, right now, Lord Jesus. You know every single person and what they're going through. There is nothing hidden, Lord God, and we thank you for your love, Lord Jesus. We give you back all the honor, all the glory. In your mighty name, Jesus Christ, we thank you, Lord God. Amen.